electricity, though, was primarily supported with General Motors. So most people worked at GM. And when I was a kid, growing up in the 80s, uh, you could drive through Flint without much fear. Not so today. My wife uh, grew up in the same area and also attended the University of Michigan and satellite campus in Flint and would drive into town each day for, for classes on campus on the banks of the Flint River. But in the 80s, GM began to move uh, slowly factories out of the city. And by 2011, the city's, city of Flint's finances were in such a mess that the state of Michigan took over their books. And after an audit, they projected that the city had $25 million in deficit. Flint then became a ghost town, uh, leaving only the residents left that couldn't afford to leave. The city began to cut back spending in order to reduce uh, their, their shortfall, and, and one area was the water fund shortfall. The city announced that a new pipeline would be built to deliver water from Lake Huron to the city of Flint. In 2014, while the pipeline was under construction, the city then decided it was wise to turn to the Flint River as its water source. When I heard about this living here, I was shocked because growing up, the Flint River wasn't known as a clean water source, if you know what I mean. Uh, I think at one point, Jimmy Hoffa was said to be buried there. <laughs> Soon after the switch, as you can imagine, residents reported changes to the water's color and smell and taste coming into their homes. Later in 2015, the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, and Virginia Tech tested the water and indicated dangerous levels of lead in the water at the residents' homes. Lead consumption can affect the heart, kidneys, and nerves. The health effects of lead exposure in children is extremely dangerous. The leaders responded saying it's not that big of a deal. In fact, the mayor of Flint was seen in a local television news program in July of 2015 drinking a cup of water at a resident's home saying, look, it's okay. And that the people were blowing it out of proportion. Except the tests were showing that the water that was coming into the homes in the city were tested at two and a half times the lead level of what would be considered hazardous waste. The water from the river was corroding the old pipes and leaching into the water. Families were bathing in this, cooking with this water, drinking this water for months. The city officials then thought that if they increase the levels of chlorine, it will flush the system and make the water cleaner. It didn't. Legionnaire's disease was diagnosed with some of the residents, and at one point that calculated at least 112 people died from this horrific debacle. Today, Flint is still trying to make things right. There are hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits. People have been sent to prison who led this city as officials in this tragic thing. I want you to pause and consider the contagious power of lead in your water. What would you do if you turned on your sink and brown water came out? Could you drink the water if only just a little bit of lead was in it? Is just a little bit of lead okay? Just a little bit of contaminant? Just a little bit actually will ruin the whole thing. You know, it only takes one drop of motor oil to contaminate a bucket of clean water. It only takes the hands of a little four-year-old who just finished a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to ruin the walls of a white. <laughs> Dirt is far more contagious than cleanliness. 
do we think of our spiritual lives like the officials there in Flint do? Maybe just adding a little chlorine will clean it up. Just adding a few good things here and there will make us holy. We'll be good with God if we do a nice thing here and there. Just adding good works will make us respectable before a holy and righteous God. We believe that our obedience is what brings us acceptance and blessing in our life from God. Is your Christian life, your church life, your obedient life, will that make you good with God? If you believe that, then this passage this morning will be alarming to you. As we enter back to the book of Haggai this morning, we pick up as we left off last week in chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And if you don't have a Bible, we've provided some there for you to use, so we encourage you to take a Bible out and open it up to Haggai chapter 2. It's on page 743 if you're using the Bible provided. And my goal is to walk through verses 10 through 19 this morning. So as I read that, I encourage you to have it open in front of you and follow along as I read. Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, but there were ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, but there were twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you brought us together this morning to sit under your word preached. And I ask that you give your people understanding and give me grace to communicate well. For your honor and glory, I pray. Amen. So there's someone on the roof right now, just so you know. <laughs> Didn't know if you would hear that at all, but <clears throat> we came this morning and saw leaking from the roof because there was a branch that crashed through the roof. So I'll try to talk through that. <laughs> uh, it's not leaking now because it's not raining, but they're going to try to fix that as we continue to worship, all right? I have two points this morning. First is we have a basic problem. God's people in Haggai's day faced a tough situation. They were, they were sinful people who were seeing the painful consequences of their sinful choices. And in the Old Testament, God's people faced the consequences of their sin very visibly. 
They were under the covenant that God made with Moses at Mount Sinai. And the consequences of their disobedience has shown up in the results of their farming. It was, it was when it was time to sit down to eat, they could see then. If they had less enough food, that was evidence of their disobedience of the Lord's commands for them. And they were tenants of the promised land. And so they were promised um, blessing there in their farming and their military if they obeyed and they served the Lord. And you can read more about this, and I encourage you to do so in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically chapter 28. It outlines this. And by the time Haggai comes, comes on the scene, God's people had experienced the militarily consequence of their long history of disobedience to God's word, culminating then in the eventual exile from the promised land in 586 B.C. This exile of God's people wasn't a coincidence. It was a result of their sin. And Jerusalem had been destroyed and the people were taken away to a far land, just as God had threatened to do in Deuteronomy 28. And now after 70 years away in exile, the people are brought back to the land, but they're still suffering the same curses for their disobedience. And as we saw in chapter 1, their lack of food and their crops were not by chance, but by the hand of God. He is in control over their land and their lives. And you might have think that their suffering that they were experiencing, that maybe they would have learned their lesson, that they would turn their back to follow God again wholeheartedly. And it's true that trials and chaos, whether personal or on a national scale, do cause people to consider life and the decisions they make, but usually only for a little while. People most definitely want a solution to their pain, but seldom are they, are they excited for a solution to their sin. You know, weeks after the tragedy of 9-11, churches were full. Everyone came back to the church, but by October, things were back to normal. When they heard about themselves and, and the messages preached from the scriptures, they didn't want those answers. It's common when natural disaster strikes that we hear leaders cry out for people to lift up things and people and their thoughts and prayers. And our, our culture search, searches out churches or synagogues or mosques where they can, we can find some kind of hope in, in difficult and trying times. And, and just like in Haggai's time, people were struggling still and they continued to bring their various offerings to the ruins of the temple and hoping that God would hear them and relieve their pain. And so God responds to the prophet Haggai once again. And verse 10 begins his third sermon on December 18th, 520 B.C. So Haggai writes there, look at verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands... And what they offer there is unclean. And the main point in these, these verses that I read is that religion cannot save you. Even if it's the true religion. And I want to unpack that thought and see and the questions that Haggai brings to the high priest. Because he brings out these questions and says, all right, go, go, go get the Torah. Let's, let's see what the word of God says here. And he starts in verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches his fold with, with bread or stew or, or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? 
See, holy meat was consecrated meat, which was with the flesh of sacrificed animals. They're they carrying some sacrificed meat in a fold of a garment. Presumably, it's meat that was left over from a fellowship offering that had been offered as a free will offering. And, and a person then could take at home to eat it with his family as long as it was consumed by the end of the second day. You couldn't leave it any longer. And so Haggai's question was that, suppose that the meat came in contact with other food while it's being carried home in the corner of the garment. The corner of the garment, think of a pocket in your pants, okay? Today it would be impossible with skinny jeans. But that's what you should picture. He's asking, would that holy meat, that meat set aside, that consecrated meat, would it be able to share its sacred status with the other food it touches in the pocket? And they answer, nope, not going to happen. Now, that consecrated meat doesn't make the stew in your pocket holy. But then he asks an additional question. If someone who is unclean by the contact of a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? See, see now if someone were, who is unclean touches one of these objects, does it become unclean when they, when they touch it? And the easy answer for them is yes, it does become unclean. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Think through that. If you stick your hand in mud and come into your house and take your muddy hand on a white wall, does the white wall stay white? Should be an easy answer, right? Does it? No. It's unclean. And touching a corpse for God's people was viewed as the worst defilement, requiring the person to, to be put outside the camp, excluded even from the Passover, as they had to abide a week-long cleaning process. But honestly, Haggai's questions were not meant for a long theological discussion of the laws of ceremonial foods or consecrated offerings. Instead, he's painting a picture for them. And he says in verse 14, so is it with this people and with this nation before the Lord, declare, before me, declares the Lord? And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. God's people were defiled in his sight, and as a result of that, everything they offered to him was defiled and unacceptable to God. Because of their defilement, everything they did in their offerings at the temple ruins was a complete waste of time. Until their status changed, God's response was the same. And you can hear it in, 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 their word, in his words to the people, the separation. He says, this people, this nation, they were separate from their God. There's a divide between them and God. Friends, holiness cannot be passed on by contact. Good things don't automatically make other things good. If your milk in your refrigerator, or let's say you don't put it in the refrigerator, let's say you go to the store and you leave it out and your milk becomes sour. Can you take that gallon of milk, open it up and add some fresh milk and then drink it? Please tell me you don't do that. <laughs> At least raise your hand so I know not to come to your house. It doesn't. It, it's, that sour milk doesn't become clean. One commentator said, one can catch a cold from someone else, but it's impossible to catch health from another. <laughs> and what he means here, what he's trying to convey, is your good works will not cancel out your bad works. Why? Because fundamentally you are bad all the way through. 
Do you believe that? People struggle to believe that. I mean, that just strikes at the core of who we are. That's why the gospel's offensive, you know that, right? You know if you're preaching the gospel, when someone is offended, when you tell them you're bad all the way through. And just like adding a little chlorine to the water source in Flint won't take care of the corrosive pipes that leach lead into the water, Sin is sin, and sin will kill you. God's people had originally been set apart by the Lord as holy in Exodus 19, but that didn't mean that all that they did was accounted as holy and acceptable in his sight. Holiness for God's people required holy obedience. And they had returned to the promised land to God's people, and they began to rebuild, but there was still a group who wasn't happy about this new temple. Nothing could replace the prior temple in their eyes. And so, and then opposition came. They all threw in the towel. They quit all together. In chapter one, they, they decide instead of rebuilding the temple, we're just going to refurbish our house. I mean, they had to steward their money well, right? You can imagine the blogs during this time. Use that money well. Maybe you'll gain a few shekels in the long run. Just upgrade that house. The Lord will be pleased. All along the while, they're disobeying. These people are stuck on stupid. And the Lord steps in to not leave them there. And he sends Haggai to preach. To preach, because God's word brings life. It's God's word that brings change. And the people respond. But actually, more precisely, it's the Spirit of God moving in them to the people to respond. But the work wasn't going smoothly or as quickly as they hope. They, they're still following through with their feasts, supposing that they could cover their disobedience. They could just muscle through. Perhaps God would change his mind. Perhaps God would just look the other way. Perhaps they could perform enough uh, good things to, to garner his grace. See, friends, religion, even true religion, cannot save you through your work because fundamentally we're all broken and we're defiled through sin. And an offering through defiled hands makes the offering defiled. A good work or even a number of good works can never make a sinner right with a holy God. Instead, a sinner will corrupt and defile any good work that they try to perform. When you are in your sin and you decide you want to serve your neighbor and you think you're doing it for the right reason the right way and do nice things for them, maybe fix their fence or clean their driveway, whatever it is, and you try to do it, and you're going to try to do it with a good attitude. You're going to try to do a good job. You're not going to ask for anything in response. You're going to do it with a smile. You want to serve them. But friends, if you're still in your sin, still bearing the weight of your own sin before a holy God, then your work for your neighbor was ultimately for yourself. You can't help yourself. You can't do it purely. And taking it even a step further to church, to worship services. If you're still in your sin and you're not a Christian, then your worship, your prayers, even to the true God, the God of the Bible, are done from motives of the heart that are partly corrupt. And so your prayers are defiled. Your worship is defiled. Friends, Sunday morning worship is not a transaction where you give to God and hope that he'll give something a little back to you. 
That's not biblical worship. That's worldly worship motivated by sin. And here's the rub. Here's the crux of my entire message this morning. The basic problem that you and I both have is that we're defiled by our sin. We're defiled by our sin. We're spoiled. We're, we've gone rotten. We're polluted with our own sin. Every single one of us here this morning has been stained by Adam's first sin, and we're born unclean. We are not born neutral. My children, and I love my kids, they're not born neutral. I didn't have to teach them to lie. I didn't have to teach them to steal from their siblings, to cheat, to be unkind. They came into this world with black hearts just like I did. It's not peer pressure. It's not hereditary family patterns. It's the simple fact that they're born with black hearts corrupted to the core. And Jeremiah preached this to God's people in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Friends, you and I are broken. We are corrupted in sin. We live not with a little good work here and a little good work there. Instead, everything we touch is defiled. It's so ingrained in us because we're all worshipers inside to look for something to worship so that perhaps we can bring a cure to our souls. And in this world, we possibly, if we understand our situation, we can even turn to religion. And we turn to the church and a service to cleanse us. But it only hides the sin, it doesn't remove it. And perhaps that's you this morning. You don't regularly come to church, but today was different and you came, and I'm glad you're here. Friend, you are always welcome here. We meet every Sunday here, Lord willing. But friend, if you're turning to religion to take care of the defilement in your soul, you will be disappointed and you will continue to walk discouraged. And Haggai right here tells us this morning that any religion that relies on our efforts to please God, even keeping the rules laid down by a true religion, cannot possibly bridge the gap between us and God. God cannot simply come alongside your sin. God cannot be with sin. God is holy and he is perfect. And so the answer to our sin problem cannot come from inside of ourselves. It must come from the outside. Our salvation cannot possibly come to us in the form of religious self-help program. It it cannot come in the form of a a spiritual to-do list. That's no salvation at all. And so my non-Christian friend that's here this morning, I, I don't want to deceive you at all. I don't want to deceive you about the good news of Jesus Christ. It cannot be earned. You cannot achieve it. We have all sinned against this holy and righteous God, every single one of us. We have stored up against ourselves God's rightful wrath for our sins, wrath that would justly take us down to hell were it not for the amazing love of God that has come to us in Jesus Christ. God the Son took on flesh, became truly human, lived a perfect life and was crucified, bearing God's wrath for our sins. 
and the sins of all who would repent and turn to him and, and trust. And God raised Jesus Christ to life in victory over sin and death. If we repent of our sins, of our trust in ourselves and our good works, and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so we will be saved from the punishment due to us for our sins, from the enslavement to sin. Until one day, even the very presence of sin itself. And we will come to spend eternity with God. All because Christ became our sacrifice. Friends, this is the good news. And my Christian brothers and sisters, I need to encourage you to remember the gospel. I wonder if some of you climb out of the car and walk into church every Sunday burdened with guilt as if there's some way that you need to perform on a Sunday morning in order for God to be sufficiently pleased with you so that you can go on to another week. Is that how you view the Christian life? Do you live the Christian life six days at a time coming to church on the seventh and hoping, hoping that God can accept you. That possibly he can look past your sin this week and maybe he, he would accept you again if you feel bad enough about your sin. Friends, that's not the gospel. That is definitely not good news. That's horrible news. Do you feel that there's something that you still need to do to gain God's favor in your life? There is nothing else you can do, Christian, in order to gain God's favor. God has done all of that in Jesus Christ. God has provided a substitute to bear his punishment for your sins, to bear his wrath for us. And because of Christ, we're left in this incredible state of freedom and acceptance. In fact, if you believe that there's something else you need to do, then you're trying to take away the, the sufficiency of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. We gather each week not to gain God's favor. Worship is not a transaction. We gather to remember Jesus Christ, to pray corporately, to give worshipfully, to hear the word preached, and to sing of what Christ has already done for us. I mean, we just sang this morning already that new song, The Lord is My Salvation, and we're going to sing it again at the end. It says, The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea, and I'm safe on this solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. I will not fear when darkness falls. His strength will help me scale these walls. I'll see the dawn of the rising sun. The Lord is my salvation. Who is like the Lord our God, strong to save, faithful in love? My debt is paid in the victory won. The Lord is my salvation. That's why we gather to worship. Christian, it's why you should come back every week to remind yourself of this glorious gospel because you need it as you leave. So continue to ask the Lord for strength to say no to sin and to say yes to him in obedience to his word. Remember the gospel. Encourage your heart with the gospel. 
know the gospel so well, friends, that you share the gospel in every chance you have. And I encourage you to start at home. Start with your family. And then with the workplace and the school, bring attention to the gospel with your life and how you live and how you respond to things in your life. And friends, can I encourage you to pray for us as a church that we will keep the gospel the main thing in everything we do. That every time we gather for Sunday school and core seminars, the gospel is heard and understood. That every time you drop off your kids, the teacher knows the gospel so well that our kids hear it. That every week in Awana, our kids hear the gospel. That every week in youth ministry, they hear the gospel. And every week we gather for adult Bible studies, the gospel is proclaimed. We are to be a gospel church. We shouldn't move on from the gospel or grow tired of the gospel. So pray that we keep the gospel the main thing. That it's quick on our lips. In every sermon from this pulpit, we want to relish God's bringing himself near to us by means of the gospel. We want to encourage each other with the gospel and pray that God will train our hearts to feed on the gospel continually. See, God's people in Haggai's day had the same basic problem that we do. They needed this reminder, and so God has a radical solution. That's number two. Look at verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. But one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. See, their circumstances were not going to be transformed by a slow process of moral improvement as they gradually learn how to live rightly with a little help here and there. Though the salvation was solely going to come from the Lord and, from his glory, and for his glory alone. And they needed to remind it yet again. And, and so he walks through with them the last 16 years of what's happening. And he reminds them there, before the stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? He's pulling their, their minds and their memories back again. And he uses this phrase, give careful thought. He says it at the beginning of verse 16, which echoes back to the similar phrase that he said in chapter 1, to consider your ways, to think deeply. They need to re- reflect back and then look forward. From the past cursed, even before even, before even the, the one stone was laid on another, now to the future blessing that's promised. They need to think through obedience to God's word. And he asks the question, how's life going? When they go and, 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 and gather 20 measures, but there's 10, and they go to the wine vat to draw, and there's not enough. They looked for more, and it came to little. They planted, and they worked, and they, wanted, they went to receive what they poured their life into and came away wanting. See, friends, they had forgotten about God. They began living life thinking nothing of God. Have you been guilty of that? Have you been guilty of that this week? Did you live this week with no thought of God? 
See, for Haggai, in this time frame, God wouldn't be forgotten. He says to the people, I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight and with mildew and with hail, and yet you didn't turn to me. God is again letting them know that he is in control over all the earth. He's in control of their crops. And he's reminding them yet again of what he said er, years and years earlier in the book of Deuteronomy. And God's fatherly chastisement was meant to recall his people to himself. And repentance was the goal. They needed to come back to their senses and come back to God fully. Richard Taylor writes, The promised result of covenant faithfulness was the Lord's blessing. The promised result of covenant infidelity was the Lord's curse. The severe agricultural disasters Haggai's community experienced was due to the Lord's attempts to arrest the attention of a wayward people and draw them back into fellowship. Only now were the people beginning to awaken to the real root of their problems. See, their good works would not save them. So God needed to act. So God tells them, it says, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is a seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. And he wants to remember, he wants them to remember this day, the 24th day of the ninth month, to write it down, to mark it on their calendars, because the Lord would act. There was more at stake for them than simply having enough to eat. The material blessings of the Old Covenant were always symbolic of the deeper spiritual blessings that flow from a relationship with God. And the reestablishment of the temple was the decisive symbolic turning point for God's people in Haggai's day. And so also was Christ coming to, to earth a radical turning point from curse to blessing for the world. Jesus is the definitive temple of God and the one in whom God has come to dwell in our midst in order to remove our defilement and restore us to his blessing. But if you remember in the Gospels, many rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They rejected the peace that God offered to them through Jesus Christ. Luke writes for us in chapter 19, verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they are hidden from your eyes. Their inability to recognize the one to whom their own temple pointed, the one whom peace with God was truly to be found, and they rejected him. And John writes for us, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him because they didn't think they needed that kind of radical salvation that he offered. Things for them didn't seem that bad. And they scoffed at him because they didn't see themselves as desperately defiled and in need of cleansing. See, friends, there was only one who truly obeyed God in all things. You and I still fail. We fall short. Even after walking with the Lord all these years. We stumble and we sin continually and we regularly want what we want and we battle selfishness in every facet of our life. Religion will not save us, even true religion. Going to church will not make us clean. And everything we did before coming to Christ was defiled in God's sight. 
even our most righteous and holy acts were as filthy rags, unable to please a holy God. We needed Jesus Christ. Even though I know the end of the story, I keep reading the book of Haggai just thinking that God's people will get it. Wishful thinking about them, about myself, that maybe they would choose God over everything else, that everything would turn out okay, that perhaps this was the final situation for God's people and they would finally get their act together. But that's not true. And you keep reading the Old Testament, keep following God's people after Haggai finishes his time here and they fall back into the same issues. Spiritual adultery. They jump into other religious relationships all to avoid having a real relationship with God, their maker, their redeemer, and their rescuer. So how do God's people become holy and receive the transformation from a curse to a blessing? You know, as I said before, holiness is not transmitted by simple contact. So growing up in a Christian home and attending a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than living in a garage makes you a car. Having contact with Christians doesn't make you a Christian. The holiness that allows us to stand before a holy God as an accepted child of his is not received through good works or good attendance at church or good thoughts, but only through union with Jesus Christ. When you are united with Jesus through faith, you will receive his righteousness as your only hope to stand before a holy God. And friends, our cleansing was accomplished at a great cost. In order for the one who was defiled to be finally cleansed, someone had to take their defilement upon themselves. For the cursed ones to be blessed, someone had to take the curse. And on the cross, Jesus was the one who was treated like he was defiled. And he was under the curse of God on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus was excluded from the Father's favor and he experienced the full measure of the Father's wrath against our sin. The only clean and completely undefiled person who has ever lived was stripped and beaten and bloodied and bruised to pay the price for wicked, defiled sinners like us so that we could be restored to the Father. And but for us, the blessings that flow from our reconciliation to God have a, a now and not yet character to them. Our blessings are not as readily quantifiable as those in Haggai's day. We, we don't get information on specifics in time. God doesn't promise earthly prosperity as a sign of blessing to us today. Instead, we're promised peace and comfort as we suffer like Jesus did. As we continue to dodge the effects of our sin and the sin done to us, we have the promise of blessing that God would never leave us or forsake us. 
and our marriages, our jobs, our relationships, our possessions can look like blessings. But if our expectation is that we will be fulfilled in those things instead of God, we won't be blessed at all. Because every one of those things can bring disappointment and discouragement. If that's where your hope is, friends, you'll be discouraged. But when we are in Jesus Christ, having been renewed by him and having his spirit living inside of us, those disappointments in life take on a new meaning and they don't crush us like they once did. Because Christ has come and borne the wrath and the curse for sin, he has changed our status before a holy God. And now the sorrows and frustrations of life don't fill us with despair. Rather, it leads us to rejoice in hope. Romans 5 reminds us of this. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Weeping may fill our lives here, but in Jesus Christ, we're headed to a place where there are no more tears. And friends and loved ones may let us down on earth, and they may hurt us, but heaven will certainly not disappoint us. And yet the most precious truth of all is that sin will not ultimately reign on earth for all eternity or in us who are in Jesus Christ. Lives deeply ingrained with dirt have now been made clean, declared definitively clean in Jesus Christ and ultimately will be completely cleansed. Every single one sin one day And I don't know about you, friends, but I look forward to that day. Who is like the Lord our God, strong to save, faithful in love? My debt is paid and the victory won. The Lord is my salvation. Let's pray. Father, you are a good God. even rehearsing this morning of the, the goodness that we've experienced today, that you woke us up and brought us here, that you bring us to join another family here, our spiritual family. And not only do we get to worship together as a family here on earth, but this is just a foretaste of the worship that we will experience together for all of eternity with you. And because of Jesus Christ, we can come to God and be cleansed for all of our sins. Jesus is the perfect one. And in him, we can have salvation for this life and life to come. God, help us to live in light of that salvation. Help us to love you well. Help us to learn of you more and to share the hope that we have in you with others that we come in contact with. May you be glorified in our lives. 
And we thank you and praise you for your salvation. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.